0: Hello, and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt, and this is another podcast for The Diplomat, and with me today is retired US Naval Captain Carl Schuster, who is currently a visiting professor at the University of Hawaii Pacific. Carl, welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, We've seen a lot of rapid change in the last six months, particularly regards Asian and Myanmar, ASEAN's position within the sort of broader world order when it comes to the Quad, the AUKUS deal. How do you think it's shaping up in terms of the future? Are we seeing real change going forward?
1: Uh, in my view, no. Uh, I think ASEAN, ASEAN need to understand ASEAN's priorities. They are, They have three things in mind. They want a stable trading atmosphere. They want peaceful stability. Uh, And their success as an organization and individual countries within are founded in their economic growth of the last 40 years. And so they worry about anything that would disrupt that. Second thing is, uh, because of their history, they are very reluctant, indeed, uh, aggressively averse to interfering with any country's domestic affairs.
0: Okay, now we've seen they don't like what, Yep. Singapore. No, uh, we've seen Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia come out by Asian standards with a relatively harsh response in terms of what's happened to the government in Myanmar being ousted by General Min Lang. We're seeing uh, Singapore. And Cambodia, even as a co-sponsor in the resolution against, uh, in the United Nations against Russia and its invasion over the Ukraine. They, these are the sorts of things we never really saw in the past.
1: That's true. Uh, and But to an extent, there's two ways to look at it, and both are legitimate. Yep. The Singapore is vehemently opposed to any intrusion into a country's territory. And they try to maintain a balanced foreign policy with partners, if you will, like the United States, uh, to ensure their security. And they maintain good, strong bilateral relations with China in order to minimize frictions with the other big player in their region. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a conventional invasion. And Cambodia has history with that, too. And so they both are strongly opposed to any intrusion into a country's territory. And Russia is trying to conquer conquer Ukraine, and Singapore is a strong opponent of any kind of imperialist grab of territory, and Cambodia, uh, despite their partnership with China, they also have a very strong foreign policy opposition to intrusions into other countries' territory. So for them, the joining in the U.N. follows their traditional foreign policy positions. Uh, And so that did not surprise me. Uh, I think what I meant by no change is, for example, you look at what's going on in Myanmar. Uh, They've they've criticized what Myanmar has done. And Indonesia has offered during its time period as uh, the leader of ASEAN to be an arbiter of the dispute between the contending factions. But ASEAN is not going to force its way on to the Myanmar needs. Uh, the leader of Cambodia, who's now president of ASEAN, uh, rotating president, he went in, they, they announced progress, when in fact, and it was, if you think of just meeting and talking one time, it's progress. That is progress, but it's not big progress.
0: Right. And but
1: certainly. that's ASEAN's approach. Let's get the dialogue going. Let's see if we can get the parties to talk. We, ASEAN, are not going to intrude. We are simply going to be a facilitator of the peace process. And that's, a, that's a, uh, an ASEAN uh, behavioral standard throughout their existence as an organization.
0: Right. So where does that leave, for example, Myanmar? Myanmar is the uh, it's a fly in the ointment. Where does that leave ASEAN in terms of being torn between China and the West? We've seen Myanmar back Russia. Uh, the Indians are in the Quad and they are, well, it's pretty, it's getting pretty difficult to figure out where they stand on Myanmar. The military in India would certainly like to maintain their contacts, they have a, a lot of lucrative contracts because the Myanmarese use Soviet weaponry, which they have the, uh, which the Indians have the uh, service contracts for, but it, how, how, how does ASEAN position itself within this broader context?
1: Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult, and they'll do it on an individual country basis. For example, Myanmar is going to support Russia. And here's India's dilemma. They're not a part of ASEAN, but one of the things that Indian leaders talked about uh, about five years ago, actually way back in 2011, was that when they joined the West in sanctioning the first military junta, they lost all influence in Myanmar, and they traditionally had pretty significant influence. The average Myanmar Person doesn't trust the Indians because they provided the bureaucrats during the colonial period. But the military and the political leadership did see India as a potential counterbalance to being dominated by China. And India wants to maintain influence in Myanmar. And they also want to maintain their partnership with Russia. And so uh, India's foreign policy and national security policy is one of counterbalance they don't want to tie themselves too closely to any great power their biggest strategic concern is china their nearest strategic concern is pakistan yes their concerns about east southeast asia is a third concern and it's because of the chinese angle And so, uh, and Myanmar borders India, so whatever spills over from Myanmar will affect India. And so India finds itself in an uncomfortable position. They don't like what's going on in Myanmar. But if they take any strong action, then their ability to influence and guide or even gauge what's going on will diminish. And they'll wind up surrendering the entire country, if you will, from an influence perspective to China which they don't want to do. They, they feel they made that mistake once, and China wasn't as strong back then. The Myanmar government, ostensibly the military guys uh, many years ago, uh, told myself and many others that they didn't trust the Chinese, and that they saw themselves as the only ones who could arbitrate uh, relations with China to ensure Burma, uh, Myanmar maintained its independence, if you will, or sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And then it's ironic the overthrow an elected government and find themselves being almost entirely dumped into the Chinese camp. So either they were telling us what we wanted to hear, which you can't discount as a possibility, or they find themselves in a tactical situation where their options are limited. And so Myanmar is probably going to continue to back Russia in the UN in most circumstances, but they'll be influenced by what China tells them to do, uh, not as much as I'm making it sound, but China enjoys significant influence up there. But Chinese officials know not to overplay their hand in Myanmar. And so what you're going to see is China's going to be kind of slow in doing whatever they're going to do in in Myanmar or with Myanmar. Cambodia is essentially a client state of China. But China doesn't dictate to its client states. It only concerns itself with their relations with China. So Cambodia under Hun Sen, he knows that the United States doesn't approve of the governance he has in Cambodia. So for him, he's almost sympathetic with the Myanmar coup. And right. so he just wants the conflict to stay contained and let, let events take their course. Uh, Thailand would like Burma just to be stable. Problems in Burma tend to spill over. Thailand is also facing some struggles. Uh, Its military appears to be divided. That may not be, that may be an exaggerated media view, but the government is very wary of getting involved in any kind of resource commitment or hard position that will force them to make a hard decision. And so they're going to basically do a mixture of wait and see, go through the motions. Mm -hmm. Malaysia is 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 gonna be interesting. Malaysians see themselves as a responsible international player and as a non-aligned state. They want good relations with everyone. What guides them though is uh, at least the officials that I used to work with. If they intrude into another country's domestic affairs, then that weakens their opposition to interference in their own affairs. They feel countries need to be consistent you either don't interfere in other countries' affairs, in which case you can strongly object to interference in yours, or if you interfere in other countries' affairs, then it's hypocritical for you to object to someone interfering in yours.
0: Right. So uh,
1: yeah. that is kind of the, you know, the balancing game. Vietnam uh, finds himself in an uncomfortable position. China's making inroads into Laos. China has already established a dominant influence position uh, in Cambodia, and China is pressing Vietnam on its seaward front, and it has more resources or military forces on the border with Vietnam than Vietnam has to counter it. And the Chinese forces of today are leaps and bounds, more modern and more powerful than what invaded Vietnam in 1979. So from a national security perspective, Vietnam, if you were to ask them for an honest opinion, they would tell you, I just want to go away. They're not going to yeah. take a position that can antagonize China. At the same time, they're very wary of what they do because of the impact on Cambodia, which is now live China, and they're competing with China for influence in Laos.
0: Right now. On, on, so. On, yeah.
1: Go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Well, we're covering with India on the edge of ASEAN and in particular the maritime disputes, which tend to head, well, east and west across the oceans and the indo Pac strategy. Obviously, in India has a natural fit in there. Now, on the other side of the oceans, on the eastern side of the South China Sea, you've got the Solomon Islands, not quite in Asian, but it's getting close there. And I've noticed the US embassy has just announced they're going to reopen an embassy in the Solomon Islands. And I'm wondering how much of this it's always solomon islands has always been a kind of sort of tricky part of the world in that um, it has its relationships with um, bigger powers it's antagonistic often towards australia it's got a tremendous history going back into uh, world war Two, and its geographical position makes it a natural kind of boundary in terms of the indo indo-pac strategy and chinese access into the pacific ocean am i reading too much into the idea that the americans are re-establishing a presence in this part of the world
1: oh no i think you've hit the nail on the head i think you could argue that we were asleep in the switch in the southwest pacific for the last eight to ten years uh maybe even longer right solomon island had high unemployment a very depressed economy the Chinese came in and invested heavily, created jobs. Uh, Admittedly, the country got in debt because of it. But from the the people of the Solomons' perspective, their lives are better because China came. And the current government, uh, to a great extent, owes its power to Chinese money and Chinese investment. Meanwhile, you know, we just kind of walked away. And so... It's not that China did such a good job in working the Solomon Islands relationship or even that with Papua New Guinea or any of the other Pacific Island countries. It's that they were the only game. Right. And so if you're you're being ignored by your traditional friends, then your traditional friends should not be surprised if uh, the ignored friend is suddenly hooking up with a new friend uh, that's fulfilling some of their needs. Uh, from our perspective, if you look at it strategically, one of the things I find interesting, and this could be an exaggeration, mm-hmm. but it looks like China has achieved the equivalent to Japan's East Asia co-prosperity sphere by investment and trade. They have great relationships uh, with Vanuatu. Uh, they've got now a security agreement with uh, with the Solomons, Uh, they've got a great relationship with Kiribati, and they were making inroads into the federated state of uh, the Marshall Islands. And so we've suddenly awakened to the fact that we're not the only game in town, and we've taken these islands and these people for granted far too long, and so now we're responding to that. My own feeling is, uh, from China's perspective, they're anchoring the outer edge of the first island chain, so they have bases and a capacity to support operations out to the second. And the second island chain reaches all the way out to Guam. So we're looking at China not only extending their reach, but preparing the ground for that extension can be done smoothly and effectively. And they're securing it economically and politically, not militarily, which kind of highlights how they are a greater security challenge than the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was overwhelmingly a military threat. Not entirely. Uh, they had some political cachet, if you will, in the non-aligned yep. movement and among revolutionary groups. But once those revolutionary groups took over the government, they found that the Soviet Union had very little offer but weapons. And so what you wound up with over time is those countries started looking for someone a country, if you will, or entities Mm -hmm. that would invest in them economically and improve the quality of life of their people. And, at that time, uh, because the West had been frustrated by all the revolutionary movements, we quit investing, China stepped in at the right time in the right place, uh, and Brexit is simply the final stage of that. And so they have a series of good relationships with those countries. Uh, the last thing on that score is, um, and this is an observation given to me by a, a former student uh, from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, you know, we only hear from the United States when you want to criticize us for something we've done or warn us about a country that we're about to partner with or do something with. Otherwise you don't care. And right. if that's the perception of our relationship then. Uh, doesn't give China a lot of competition to step in and increase its position.
0: Right. We've seen a fairly strong pullback by the Chinese, which predated COVID. I think COVID e- exacerbated uh, the situation. they yet to come back in Cambodia and in Southeast Asian countries to, as a force the way they were before. You've got the Chinese Communist Party Congress in October, which I would suspect is holding things up a bit. But there seems to be, the Chinese do seem to have taken the foot off the throttle since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. uh, There seems to be a sort of like backing down in the the power talk that we've experienced over the last few years. Do you think this will hold? Do you think the Chinese are reorganising their strategy for investment trade and militarily going forward are we you know you know kind of a hiatus uh, and we yet to see how this is going to unfold how do you think it will pan out
1: I, I think it's a hiatus but it's one based on a perceived need to recalculate they have three things going on uh two of which we don't really have a good feel for if you will mm-hmm. uh one is g is focused on problems at home and he has to do two things simultaneously. He has to reduce expenditures and he has to maintain some kind, I won't say reserve for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't know how much he's going to get sucked into what Russia. Right. And he's got to back Russia, but he's got to be careful of how much that backing costs. And that leads to the other two factors. COVID and their debt load and China's debt load has had an effect on the economy that is not visible to us. China claims they're still growing at 7% a year. I find that very hard to believe.
0: Yeah, indeed. They've
1: shut down entire cities. They have reduced investment and construction activity. And they've suffered a reduction in trade. And so that tells you that the available financial resources to commit to anything is limited. It either has to be directed at something internal or... It's just not there.
0: Right.
1: The third thing is uh, he's getting some kind uh, of—well, first of all, COVID hasn't gone away, and he's getting some kind of political resistance. I don't think it's major. I don't think it's going to lead to his downfall, but it is drawing his attention. So he's got three sets of competing calculations. The attachment to Russia may potentially hurt China economically. Right now, that has not happened. And Russia is a useful distraction, tying down American and NATO attention in Europe. And it's giving Xi an opportunity to increase his position in the Middle East. He isn't pressuring Southeast Asia, because I think he realizes that he's gotten as much as he can without a massive commitment of resources, which he doesn't want to do. But he has militarized finalized the militarization of at least three of the island garrisons in the South China Sea. They now have long-range radars, SAMs, even have laser weapons. That's a significant buildup that's occurred just over the last 18 months. So to an extent, he's exploited the distraction to China's advantage in the South China Sea. I noticed the intimidation of Taiwan was diminished for a while. Now it's back. Right. And so... I think he's calculating what he can get away with, what he can do, and he also has to commit resources to what he wants the PLA to prepare for. He's an opportunistic leader. Uh, He's looking for opportunities. He's not going to invade Taiwan unless he thinks he can achieve a quick victory, uh, or the United States isn't going to get involved at all. And so there's a lot of calculation going on behind the scenes that we don't see. His intentions have not changed. He wants to dominate the South China Sea, make it Chinese territory. He wants Southeast Asia to essentially be a Chinese uh, hegemonic region, mm-hmm. sphere of influence. And I think he wants to unify Taiwan and take the uh, and dominate the East China Sea. Those intentions are still there. And if he can get away with it, he would grab them. So the calculation going on is, what is the cost versus risk? To do it, and at what time will that cost versus risk make it worthwhile? Right. That's what I think. is going through.
0: Okay. Now, and I
1: think ASEAN just doesn't want to get involved in a confrontation between us and China. So they want to be strong. They're increasing their defenses. I don't know how much they're cooperating together uh, militarily, but I do know that they occasionally talk. Uh, and they just don't want to make a decision or take a position until they have to. They don't want to produce or generate a self-fulfilling prophecy of war. They want to deter it, but they don't want to provoke it. So that's the walking, the wire walk that they're doing.
0: Now, on another note, I understand that during your time in the military and since then, if if I'm correct, you retired around 1999, 2000.
1: Indeed, someone had to.
0: Uh, (laughs) uh, Tell me about hypersonic weapons. There's a lot of talk about... Hypersonics going on at the moment and versus supersonics, Mach 5, Mach 10, uh, particularly with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, which logistically constantly seems to be falling apart. But there's a lot of noises being made about Russia and its ability to produce hypersonic weaponry. How much of it's hype? How much of it's real? And can, uh, for the uninitiated, perhaps you can explain a little bit what it's all about
1: yeah uh, i think a lot of it's hype it's not entirely hype but i think it's fairly close uh and the reason i say that is uh hypersonic weapons are very expensive and difficult to produce mm-hmm. uh and the reason is uh first of all let's define hypersonic weapons first of all ballistic missiles are hypersonic right you have to get above mach 5 to go through the stratosphere and come down from the ionosphere so, a ballistic missile is by, if it has more than a 200 nautical mile range, it's hypersonic. So, when someone refers to a hypersonic weapon, they're referring to a weapon that does above Mach 5, which is 50 miles a minute, within or on the edge of the stratosphere. They typically travel along the edge of the stratosphere and just below the mesosphere, in other words, above 100,000 feet. And so, Yeah, that's a hypersonic weapon, and it follows a traditional flight path, not a ballistic path. Right. Now, here's why that's important from a defender's perspective. A ballistic missile follows a mathematical predicted path, and so if I can track that launch to apogee accurately, then I have a fairly reasonable chance of intercept that missile because within the variations of the accuracy of its flight, it's following a predicted ballistic path. The problem with a hypersonic weapon is it does a large, almost ballistic launch. Now, I'm going to go with the boost-glide first. There's two types. There's the boost-glide the boost glide version, and there's the powered version. Mm-hmm. boost-glide version goes up, up into the ionosphere, and then comes down at a relatively high angle, enters the lower edge of the mesosphere, and levels off, takes about six or eight miles for it to level off, and then it travels along the edge of the stratosphere. It is not powered during that portion of the flight, so it's doing about Mach 15 or 20 when it hits the stratosphere, and then it's down to about Mach 6 or 8 as it approaches its target uh, several hundred to a thousand miles away. Now, the disadvantage of a hypersonic weapon is... Traveling at that speed on the edge of the stratosphere creates tremendous amounts of heat. And the compressed air wave in front of that missile, Mm -hmm. the molecules of the air become ionized. So there is no radar sensor inside that missile going to penetrate that. In effect, it's jamming itself. Right. Until it drops down to about Mach 5. So you have about a 60-minute period where the missile is essentially blind. But if it has an accurate guidance system, and believe me, they do, and when it tips over and comes down to the target, uh, its guidance system typically should be accurate within about 25 to 50 uh, meters. Wow. It's coming down at you, and then it typically does uh, a maneuver. Uh, It only needs to do a slight 3 to 4G maneuver And if you're engaging it with a uh, guided missile, guided missiles use proportional guidance. That is, they predict where the target's going to be, and they launch towards that intercept point. As the target maneuvers, that calculation changes, and the missile has to maneuver towards it. Hypersonic missiles are more difficult to engage because they can maneuver laterally as well as vertically. So you're going to require more than one missile to take one out and your time gates for the engagement are very constrained I mean very restricted you've got about a 25 second window if you shoot too late the missile won't catch up if you shoot too early the missile maneuvers and once again you miss so you actually have a very narrow window for engagement that's why hypersonic weapons are considered such a threat now what the other type is the powered hypersonic and they're slower and that's what I think the Russians used in Ukraine. Now yep. the Russians have experience with near hypersonic weapons. When I was on active duty, they had a weapon called the AS four, kitchen missile, it was launched from the backfire bomber. It flew at about sixty five to seventy thousand feet and it had a speed of Mach four point five.
0: Right, so it's close.
1: And it was a very difficult missile to engage. Uh, in our early uh, systems, we only had about a 12% success rate against a weapon of that type. Aegis solved that problem, which you had to have better computers, you had to have a longer-range missile, and you had to have a much faster engagement processing capability. And also, having a uh, synth- synthetic array uh, radar, synthetic scanning radar, reduced the time uh, uh, between scans during the tracking, uh, the gap during tracking. Mm-hmm. But what we quickly learned is, intercepting arrows is always a an almost instrumental challenge. It's easier to kill the archer. Right. So we focused on the fleet defense side of taking out the backfire before it got within missile range, and so our tactics were designed to achieve that. For the weapon the so the Russians used in Ukraine, I think it only has a range of about 400 miles, which means it's in the air about. Uh see, 50 miles a minute, so you're looking at uh, eight minutes. It's probably fairly accurate, but it's launched from an aircraft, typically within 300 miles of the target. So, and I don't think they have a lot of them because they've only yeah. entered service, with, supposedly only entered service in the last 18 months. And whenever you hear a pronouncement of that type, always remember there's what they want you to believe and what's probably true. Indeed. I'm one who thinks that uh, it's come out of Opival. It's probably entered production. But I, you know, I don't think they have more than a handful of them because if they had several, they would have used them several.
0: Right. How, uh, how Instead, advanced- they use
1: one, declared yep. sex, and, to- success and told us all they had lots, and, lots of them.
0: Right. How advanced is uh, China on hypersonics?
1: Chinese have been pursuing it aggressively. Uh, they claim they have a uh, hypersonic boost glide weapon. And they have something very similar in their DF-21 ballistic missile. It releases a form of uh, a, a maneuverable warhead that comes down into the atmosphere, levels off, and flies a series of, what do we call them, stepladder-type maneuvers. So it's a form of hypersonic weapon. It's an anti-ship ballistic missile. comes in probably two forms, I think. One of them is the ballistic missile provides has, has a terminal guidance system, tracks you until it enters the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And then three minutes later, it uh, comes here or uh, hits the target. And so three minutes doesn't leave you a lot of time to displace from the aim point. Hypersonic uh, version, if you will, uh, comes down and it does a series of stepladder engagement uh, flights. Right. So stepladder flight path, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you can only engage it. You have to time your engagement to catch it before it enters the dive and the pull-up. So you got to catch it while it's in stable flight. And there isn't a whole lot of time between those. Keep in mind, the missiles don't get there instantaneously. When you fire a SAM, uh, let's say it has a speed of Mach 5. If Mm -hmm. it's more than 50 miles away, then you're looking at a more than one minute uh, flight time to the target. So all that has to be calculated when you're trying to engage the weapon.
0: Okay. Now, uh, the short-term prognosis seems to be, uh, well, (laughs) a little bit frightening. What's your longer-term prognosis for the region? Where do you think we'll be five years from now?
1: Uh, five years from now, that's a tough one. I think what we're going to see is the character of the Myanmar government is going to be different. I think I don't think it'll be a pure democracy, but I don't think the I think the junta will face a crossroads. They either have to basically destroy the country to maintain power, or they need to come to some kind of accommodation because the resistance groups are getting stronger and more effective. Mm-hmm. And I think, to a great extent, China will dictate what they do, or, or at least will influence. I think that uh, I think ASEAN uh, will begin to develop a security arrangement among the countries. But the trouble is, they don't have a unified perception of the threat. Cambodia sees China as a friend. Vietnam sees China as a historically aggressive, threatening neighbor that they don't want to provoke, and they're not going to get involved in anything unless they're guaranteed of help. And Russia is not going to help them, who is a traditional uh, defense sponsor. The United States tends to be ephemeral from their perspective, so they're not sure how much they can trust us. They want us to be a partner, and they're not sure how far they can commit to us. India has a defense arrangement with Vietnam, but they're far away. Uh, And they have their own problems on the border with China. Uh, And so what you're going to see is ASEAN is going to try to become more internationally engaged with countries outside Asia. You're going to see several ASEAN countries moving closer to Japan, Philippines in particular.
0: I was just going to say we saw that with uh, Kushida's recent visit uh, to India and Cambodia, the recently elected Japanese Prime Minister, Fumio Kushida came down here and uh, they bought a glad bag of tidings uh, in terms of investment, foreign aid, um, and uh, they're, looking for, they're looking for support. And I think the Cambodians are, and other countries around the region who have relied too heavily on uh, China are looking for uh, a lean-to for the West, and Japan seems to be providing that.
1: Indeed. In fact, I think the ASEAN countries are looking for alternatives to Chinese investment and trade. China controls their water supply, their dams on the Mekong River, uh, and, and their funding of La ocean dams on the river have affected Cambodia and Vietnam, Vietnam in particular. The Mekong River, when I was in high school, was this gigantic flowing river that provided you know, the breadbasket of Vietnam and millions of tons of fish and so forth. Well, now 50% of the Mekong Delta is brackish water because the ocean is coming up into the river because the river flows dropped so far. Um... Indeed. And so these countries are looking for an economic alternative to China. Philippines is looking for it. I mean, one of the things a Philippine friend told me says, Pick, you know, the West invested over $2 trillion in China's economy, and that's what brought China out of poverty, not the Communist Party. But think what that $2.1 trillion would have done to the Philippines, Vietnam, and Indonesia.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's, it's hard to argue that point. I think investment in trade will determine ASEAN's foreign policy direction five years hence. And the danger is if we disengage and we surrender the influence game to China, then those countries are going to have to seek an accommodation with the big dog. And that big dog will be China if we continue to retreat from the region.
0: And on that note, Carl Schuster, it's been terrific to chat with you, hypersonics and ASEAN. China and Russia. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, sir. Good talking with you.
0: And you.